Good morning, everyone. Happy almost New Year. You are the few, the proud, the brave people who go to church between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Uh, we're really glad you are here uh, worshiping with us. Uh, it's a gift. It's a gift. And I, I just want to echo what Brad said. Alpha is such a great way to get to know uh, your church. And so if you're new here, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, Alpha is a great way to come and, uh, and just hear from your pastors and to hear about the foundations of our faith and to drink beer, uh, which is never a bad thing. It's at Monday Night Garage on the, in the West End, and we, we have a great time. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 2, uh, beginning of verse 13. Before I read, I'll just say, like, my literal least favorite Christmas song is the 12 Days of Christmas. I hate that song. I, um, it's so repetitive and annoying. And yet the one thing that that song does do is it reminds us that Christmas is a season, not just a day. So whether you know anything about what to do with a partridge in a pear tree, I just want to say to you, it's not inappropriate to say Merry Christmas during this season. We're still in the midst of 12 days of, of Christmas. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that the birth of Jesus, and specifically what we're going to look at today, uh, the life of Jesus as a small child, a, roughly a two-year-old, is, is such a wonderful idea that God came to us. Uh, not as a politician or as a, a ready-made warrior deliverer, but God came to us as a baby. That's such a big idea that it takes more than just one day with gifts and presents to begin to wrap our heads around it. So we're going to celebrate Christmas today by looking at uh, the life of the infant and small child Jesus and then asking what we can learn from it. So uh, verse 13 in Matthew 2. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in, in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee and there he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and then let's try to hear what we can hear and receive what we can receive from this passage. God, we ask today for grace. Grace to be still. A grace to sit with what for many of us is probably a familiar story. Uh, these stories around the, the small child Jesus. And I pray God that today we would hear this story and maybe also hear an invitation from you to think about our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be like Joseph and Mary in real ways, that we would see them as our example, our leaders, our teachers. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first movement in this passage uh, really is just one word, and it's a context clue, now. And if you know anything about the, um, the way to read literature, when you see a word like now or therefore, you need to pay attention to what's happened before. And one of the challenges that we have with our Bible is that our Bible is broken up into sections and chapters and verses. And when the Bible was first written, these stories about Jesus specifically, uh, there were no numbers and there were no chapter delineations. It was a uh, narrative. And so one of the problems that we have in the, in the West and in our world today with our Bibles um, is that we sometimes disconnect. We read sections as like little self-contained units. So whenever you see a word like now or therefore, you need to pay attention to what has happened beforehand. Otherwise, you'll miss the power and the force of of the story. Now, I'm all for chapter and verse breaks. Helps you find stuff in the Bible. That's a, a great thing. Uh, but in this context, in this moment, we need to pay attention actually to our context. So what's just happened before? Uh, Jesus has been born. Um, Joseph and Mary are visited by shepherds who are outsiders. And if you were with us on Christmas Eve, we looked at the beauty and the power of that story of these outsiders, these Jews who were uh, men of the fields. You know, they smelled like dead animals and wood smoke. They were not viewed uh, by polite society as somebody they, you want in their house. Uh, they didn't get invited to parties. They didn't get to go to temple or synagogue. Uh, these people were always unclean. Um, they were kind of scary to people around them. And they lived outside and Jesus um, invited them through stars and angels to come to his crib first. So these outsiders come first. But in addition to the shepherds, wise men come to Jesus. By the time we pick up the second chapter of Matthew, two years almost certainly has passed. Jesus is now a toddler. He's entering into his two-year uh, journey. So those of you who are parents that have two-year-olds, Jesus was better than your kid, but he was still a two-year-old. Uh, he was running around. He was probably like, you know, playing with the animals and poking the animals and getting to know friends. And he was doing all the things that two-year-olds do minus all the wickedness that your children and mine uh, did. <laughs> and any, anybody who doesn't think kids are wicked has never been around one. Um, uh, they are wicked indeed, but Jesus was not. But he was still a rambunctious little fella. I'm almost certain of that. And these magi come to Jesus and they visit him. And I just want to set the, the, the record straight. Um, we think that it was like the night Jesus was born, the shepherds come. And then 30 minutes later, the wise men come. And we think there were three of them. And all that's just a load. It's wrong. It's false. Uh, these guys were uh, pagans. They were the people who lived their life, like paying attention to the horoscope at the back of creative loafing. They were not Jews. If the shepherds were outsiders, these were way outsiders. Scary even. They probably had tattoos. <laughs> they, they came from way far away. And they spent probably two years traveling to get to Jesus. They saw a star in the sky and they knew that something was going on in that part of the world. And they got all the way to Jerusalem. And then when they went to Jerusalem, uh, they asked the scholars in Jerusalem, uh, we got in the ballpark. Now, how do we get to the one who's the king? And the scholars consult the Bible 
And the Bible tells them that the king would be born in Bethlehem. And I find it so interesting that these outsiders, um, God's general revelation, like the beauty of the stars, got them into the ballpark, but they had to consult the scripture to get all the way to Jesus. And I feel like I can feel God's life when I'm in the backcountry of Colorado or I'm out in North Carolina or the mountains even of North Georgia. And that's a good thing to feel God out in nature. But you've got to get into the scripture if you're going to find out exactly how to get real connected to Jesus and who God is. And that was true for the Magi, and I think it's true for us. Y'all, we need to read our Bibles. Uh, The new year is an opportunity for you to decide again whether you're going to be a person who is confronted with the Bible or whether you're just going to sort of keep it at arm's length. And I just want to say to you, um, we want you to read your Bible. I read my Bible uh, from start to finish every year, and I don't like a lot of it. A lot of it's confusing, frustrating. And you know why? The Bible's a really old book written by a lot of people that ain't from around here. But it tells us about the world and about God and about people and about how God would interact with people. The Bible's a really important book in helping us understand how to get more connected to God. And these magi, they came from a great distance. And I just want to say to you, when was the last time you gave yourself two years to figure something out? These guys came and spent probably two years traveling to figure something out. And when they got to Jesus, I just want to say there weren't three of them. We, we miss it. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three people didn't travel with fancy stuff back in the day. There would have been 30 to 50 or more of these people. They would have been in a big caravan to stay safe. And when they got to Jesus, he was toddling around. They were still living in Bethlehem. And they came and they said, we see something in you and we've been willing to follow it through. This is an opportunity for us to see from these pagan outsiders the commitment of tenacity to follow through, to pursue something, even if it takes you a little bit of time to figure it out. I would submit to you anything worth figuring out is going to take you some time to figure it out. And reading your Bible is going to take you some time because it's hard. It's challenging. But y'all, there's something there for us. It's really important. So they go see Jesus and then they go back and they try to pull one over on Herod. They skip town without telling Herod what's up. And the second movement is Joseph has another dream. If you've been following the story, Joseph has lots of dreams. I want to say this to you first before I say anything about Joseph's dream. Joseph was a person and God spoke to him through dreams. And I want to say to you, at the risk of sounding or looking foolish, I believe that for many of us, God wants to and even is trying to speak to us through our sleeping hours. Maybe Joseph needed to be asleep to hear from God. Maybe his brain, like your brain, was so full of busyness and hurry and worry and problem solving and trying to fix everything that it took him going to rest where his defense mechanisms came down for God to say something to him. Now, I don't remember most of my dreams, but when I do remember a dream with any kind of clarity, I stop and I pray and I say, God, did you, were you trying to show me something or say something to me through that dream? Now, sometimes it's just what you ate for dinner. It's like your pizza. But sometimes the Lord might be trying to communicate truth 
to you about yourself and your life and your fears and your hopes. And sometimes he wants to tell you something about his heart for you through your dreams. And the worst thing that can happen is you ask and nothing makes any sense. But maybe God will speak to you in ways that will help shape and guide your life. He spoke to Joseph over and over and over. And if you talk to mature Christians, men and women who've walked with God for a long time, they will tell you that God occasionally gives them insight through their dreams. And I think that the worst thing, the best thing we could do is hear from God. The worst thing we can do is be open and it not be that impressive. The Lord, I believe, wants to open us up. So for Joseph, he has a dream and the Lord tells him, take the baby and flee because there's a threat on Jesus's life. And so Joseph wakes up and he tells his wife, Jesus is under threat. And that leads us to the third thought that I want to share with you. And it's this one. Jesus has always been and will always be a threat to the status quo. Herod, this regional ruler, was a desperately insecure guy. He was always threatened. He killed people around him that he thought were a rival or a threat to his power. Well, he hears that this little baby is going to be a king and he goes into a jealous rage. And from the very beginning of Jesus' life, we see this. He was a threat to the status quo. He was a threat to the comfort and the security of people who wanted to create order without him. And I'm going to say this to you, every place in my life where I try to create security and order without God, Jesus will poke at that part of me and threaten the status quo. If you find that Jesus hates all the same people you hate and supports all your agendas and ideas and never turns the fruit basket upside down and never disrupts you or challenges you or makes you uncomfortable, then you are worshiping less than the God of the universe. Jesus wants to poke at us every now and again. And since the beginning of time, Jesus has been upsetting the status quo. So what does your status quo look like? What might God be wanting to disrupt as you walk into a new year? Where are there places where you are comfort at ease oriented and God's wanting to challenge you and say, I'm gonna shake things up a little bit. A lot of us in this room would do well with God shaking some stuff up because the status quo, that thing that we desperately desire, because it makes us feel like we're in control. It makes us feel like we know what's gonna happen next. It makes us feel like we can make our own way. For many of us, that's the very thing, those inclinations that is holding us back from being the kind of men and women God wants us to be. Jesus always looks to disrupt the status quo. He always looks to poke at that, whatever that thing is. We say this sometimes at the church, that when we say yes to Jesus, we're implicitly saying no to other things. So if I say, Jesus, you are my purpose, then I'm implicitly saying my wealth and my reputation are not my purpose. If I say, Jesus, you are my comfort, then implicitly I'm saying bourbon is not my comfort. Security is not my comfort. And I think that some of us need to start paying attention to the unspoken no. If I say yes to Jesus, it means I'm saying no to some other things. And sometimes we have to connect those dots and recognize what is God asking you to begin saying no to this year? Because if you say yes to him, you're going to have to say no to some other stuff. And one of the challenges that we have, and this is a challenge that I face on a daily basis, is that I look to things and people and situations 
to give me what only God can really give me. And those situations and people and circumstances are always going to come up short. And they're always going to frustrate us. Jesus is a disruptor of the status quo. Saying yes to him means learning to say no to some other stuff. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that Joseph and Mary take intentional steps to shelter and protect Jesus. Now, this is a new idea for a lot of us in this room. We know the Bible says the word of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're safe. We know that Jesus said that he wanted to spread his wings over us like a, like a mother hen and shelter us. So we see this imagery throughout the whole Bible that God shelters us. But here we see that the infant child needed to be sheltered by his mother and father. Joseph and Mary had to take intentional steps to protect the vulnerable work of God that had come into the world. I would submit to you that God wants to do things in your life and has done things in your life. And yet those things almost always appear as a vulnerable thing. There's a reason why the Bible tells us Jesus came as an infant. He came like a little tender baby who, if he were exposed to the elements, would have died. Or a tender plant that, if it had been stepped on, would have been squashed. And so there's this invitation in the story of Christmas, and frankly, the story of Christianity, that we get to, in no small way, provide a kind of safe space for the work of God to take root and really grow in our lives. Mary and Joseph were living out what you and me, what we're invited to experience and to cultivate throughout our lives, which is this kind of beautiful participation with the work of God, the kind of work that almost always seems peripheral and vulnerable when it first starts. Jesus is a baby. Joseph and Mary had to say, I'm going to work with you, God, to see this baby grow up. And that doesn't put you and me in charge of God. But what it does do is it gives us a sense that we have a part to play in sheltering this and seeing God's work grow. So I want to give you a couple of examples. Some of us in this room right now are in a tough spot in a relationship. And it might be the person sitting next to you. You know, we love people that we don't always like. And a lot of us run into this. If you live more than like a few minutes as an adult, you're going to realize I love some people that I do not like. And that might be the person you share a bed with or used to share a bed with because things are really hard. And what happens sometimes in our lives is that we let ourselves grow into these places where things feel really cold, whether it's a friendship or a marriage. And then we have a spark of something that reconnects us. It almost feels like a gift. It's like a moment where you reconnect and you feel that warmth. If you don't nourish that reconnection, you'll just go back to the status quo. And it happens to us all the time. We're the kind of people who are always being invited. We give these little spark, warmth gifts of God. And then if we don't tend to that thing, like a little fire on a cold night outside, it'll just go out and we go right back to where we were. One of the things that I believe the Lord gives us in terms of a picture with Joseph is that whether it's our walk with God or our walk with each other, that we have to actually take intentional steps to protect or shelter the vulnerable, new, and little thing that God does when he gives us an invitation 
to get back to where we always wanted to be. Joseph and Mary take intentional steps to take care and shelter the work of Jesus. What does it look like for you as you're walking into a new year to take intentional steps to shelter your life with God, your connection to God? Where have you experienced a spark and let it go out? And most of us, if we're honest, if we reflect a little bit, we've experienced that spark of an invitation that we just didn't do anything with. I believe the gift is that God gives us those sparks again and again, hoping that we're gonna do something about it, that we're gonna create a shelter for the work of God to grow. And that is your job as a spiritual person, to actually work a little bit with God and creating a space for things to grow. This is why I read the Bible every day. Even when I'm frustrated, I read the Bible. Even when I'm tired, I read the Bible. This is why I pray the prayer of examine on a regular basis because I want to know what's going on in my life and I want to be able to keep those short accounts with God. It's a way that I shelter and I tend to the life that God wants me to have. You've got to take intentional steps. So do I. Number five, storms, even really bad ones, eventually run their course. You may be today facing a storm in your life. Maybe things have been especially hard this last year. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, 2019 has been a really challenging year for, for me on a personal level. Uh, Karen and I have both experienced um, a lot of growth this last year, but it has not been fun. It has not been easy. It's actually been one of the more challenging years that I, I can remember in the last number. But what I've learned about storms is that storms always run their course. And you either get better or you die. Like either way, storms run their course. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the Jews, whenever they would talk about suffering, and they talked about it a lot, would oftentimes use the Hebrew acrostic. They would go through the alphabet, the beginning and an end. Things either get better or you die. And one of the things that I feel like the Lord is challenging me to begin to believe is that death won't be such a bad thing when it comes. I think we spend so much of our energy so afraid of ultimate things. And at the end of the day, what we read right before we uh, started to hear from the sermon is that death even isn't the end of the story, that Jesus actually has something to say about that. But in this instance, Herod goes, Jesus is born, Herod goes and kills a bunch of small children in Bethlehem. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. Probably between 10 and 20 kids, two and under, were murdered in this tiny little village. It would have left like this indelible mark on that little town because of one man's fear about his power being disrupted. And that would have been a huge storm. Joseph and Mary leave and they go to Egypt. And Jesus spends the next number of years of his life as a refugee. And you may look today at the plight of refugees all over our world, at our border and around the world and think, I don't really identify. I can't really relate. I don't really know what it feels like to be displaced. But I just want to say this to you in no uncertain terms, in, with unflinching clarity, Jesus knows what it's like to be a refugee. He was one. He knew what it was like. His mom and dad knew what it was like to live without a home, longing for a home to hope that someone would open up their border to them and give them a space. And I just want to say this, that's not a political statement. That's just a statement of fact. Here's where it does become a little political. And I'm not talking about Republican and Democrat political. I'm talking about the fact that God always has something to say about justice in the world. 
you, as a follower of Jesus, should care about refugees. Because it's a human problem. It's a sign that the world is upside down and topsy-turvy. It's a sign that someone had to flee their home looking for a better way, looking for a safer way for their babies. Now, the gift that Jesus had as a refugee was that his mom and dad weren't taken from him. He wasn't separated from his parents. He had them. And then Joseph has another dream. And in the dream, the Lord says to a mom and dad who've taken care of their refugee child as a refugee family and says, you can go back home. Some of you have been living in a space that has not felt like home for a really long time. Maybe you've been in a place of feeling like you're in like emotional or spiritual or relational exile where you're just not comfortable, not feeling safe, not feeling satisfied. I want to say to you, at some point, God always invites us to come and figure out what peace and home look like. So we see at the end of this passage, this idea is that Jesus actually comes home. And what you know in the story is this. They don't end up where they were. They end up in Nazareth. And Nazareth is is just this rough town. It's like a... It's like a blue-collar town where the bars outnumber the churches. I, you know, it's just not a very nice place. It, somebody once said in the New Testament, can anything good come from Nazareth? Where Jesus grew up was just like a redneck, beer-drinking, um, fighting-in-the-street sort of place. It wasn't a fancy place, but it was his home. He knew it. He knew the people. He knew the synagogue. He knew the back roads. He knew the best places to eat. He knew where the good fruit was hanging from the trees. It was his place. And one of the things that I love about that is that Jesus actually knew what it felt like to be settled. He knew what it felt like to be at home. And you may not be geographically settled. Maybe this isn't where you're from. Actually, very few people are from Atlanta. I was born at Northside Hospital. I think there are like 10 of us who are from Atlanta, who live in Atlanta. Most of you are from other places. But God wants you to find a place of stability, a place where you're settled, a place where you know you belong. And that's one of the things that a church can help give you. But it goes deeper than a place, than like a brick and mortar place. It's about a kind of spiritual understanding that you can be settled. Jesus was settled. He had a place. He had people. And I just want to leave you with this. We've asked a number of questions today. I think here's another good one to ask as you approach a new year. Are you willing to be rooted? Are you willing to pay the price of routine and monotony of like really being in a thing for a long time? Sometimes we go from thing to thing, from idea to idea and job to job and relationship to relationship and place to place. And we're always starting over. There's something about being willing at least to sit still for a little bit that I think does have a powerful effect on us. It did on Jesus and I think it can on you and it can on me. So there's the text. Every Sunday at this church, we come to communion. If you're able, let's stand together.
Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.